Hi, this is Tom Compton of We Hold These Truths. You're listening to the Unheralded News and Review and Pharisee Watch, brought to you by We Hold These Truths at whtt.org on the web. Each week we look into the events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's podcast for Pharisee Watch and Unheralded News, we're going to be calling this our focus on Israel. There's so much information, news coming out about Israel that it is quite amazing what is going on from the release of some of the detention prisoners who've been on hunger strikes to the flightilla, people coming in to meet with Palestinians, the IDF incident hitting a Danish visitor in the West Bank. There's all kinds of things going on, and we want to present these articles and then talk about them. So we're just going to give little summaries of it. Leslie, why don't you read us the first one here. This is from Arkansas Online. Israel releases Palestinian with end of hunger strike. Gaza City, Gaza Strip. Israel expelled a Palestinian prisoner Sunday to the Gaza Strip as part of a compromise deal that persuaded her to end her 43-day hunger strike. Under the terms of her release, Hannah Shalabai, a 30-year-old Islamic Jihad supporter from the West Bank, must remain in the seaside strip for the next three years. Shalabai went on hunger strike to protest Israel's policy of administrative detention, under which it holds some Palestinian prisoners for months, even years, without charges. Shalbai launched the strike after being placed in administrative detention on February 16th. She ended it on Thursday. The Israeli prison authority said she was in custody for unspecified terror Activity, And why don't you read the summary on the other gentleman here, Kadar Adan. Israel releases Kadar Adnan from administrative detention. Times of Israel, April 17, 2012. Kadar Adnan, a security prisoner in Israel who went on a hunger strike for two months earlier this year, was released from administrative detention Tuesday night. Sixty-six days later, he had lost his hair and some 30 kilograms and was close to death. Israel fearing the repercussions of a death behind bars. Okay, well let's talk about this. This administrative detention is really draconian. Of course, in Israel, the Israeli citizens have three days, if they're charged with a crime, to be charged with a crime. In the Palestinians, on the other hand, who are in the West Bank and Gaza, being under martial law, have up to eight days of in prisons without any charges. But then the other caveat is this administrative detention where in three-month increments, three to six months, they don't have to charge anything, and that's that's what's being addressed here. Chuck? Yes, these people have been under administrative detention, meaning no charges. Miss Shalabi had already been in prison once. 
she beheld for a number of years, literally for years, she was actually released a few months ago in the prison exchange for one Gilad. Um, Gilad was a, a French soldier who was released by the Palestinians in exchange for the release of all these women prisoners plus some men prisoners, uh, among the 4,000 or so people being held on administrative leave. So Israel reneged on the deal. They turned her loose, and a month later they went out to her house, grabbed her, picked her up, and threw her right back in. What we're not <clears throat> hearing here is that these people have been on such prolonged hunger strikes that they were both at the point of death. There was some concern whether they would even live long enough to be released, and uh, they can't actually live outside of a hospital, either one of them. So Israel probably doesn't care if they die on the, in the, on, on the ambulance on the way to the hospital because they get them out of their custody, and then what happens to them is their problem. There is, uh, uh, however, an, another announcement that's just been made today on April 17th, and that is that 1,200 more Palestinian detainees have gone on a hunger strike starting today. This is an amazing number, and generally these things are individual acts where you don't have groups of people basically pledging hunger strikes. We will be interesting to see and painful to see if the 1,200 Palestinians do actually remain without food in the Israeli detention. I heard the figures this week at a presentation by the Students for Justice in Palestine here in Phoenix at Arizona State University. They had four students, and one of the students actually was spent a number of months in the West Bank in a, near a small village and documented there is a campaign. He, According to him and statistics, 40% of the Palestinian men have spent time in prison, and there were about, I think, 7,000 political prisoners in the Israeli jails. And about 10% of those, maybe not quite 10%, are youth under the age of 18 years. So you're getting kids from 14 to, to 18, even some as young as 12 years old, and in this particular village, they documented, I think in a matter of a few months, about 87 of these house arrests. What the Israeli occupation force, what is called by the Palestinians, we know it as the Israeli defense force, what they do is at between the hours of 12 a.m. and 3 a.m. in the morning, they make these raids on Palestinian homes, and they have children anywhere from the age of 12 on up to 20, I guess, uh, that are you know living there. They will pound on the doors, break the doors down. Typically, showed pictures of where they ransack the house, uh, do things for spite, like tear pages out of books, and then haul the uh, the child away. And so it's a it's a form of intimidation and they'll stick a charge like rock throwing and then the children may spend several months uh, in jail uh, although they can buy through bail they can they can reduce their time and that's what this group that he was sponsored by was was actually looking to raise funds to 
help bail the young Palestinian children out of jail. So it's they're starting young to intimidate the uh, young Palestinians to get them so that they will not resist the tyranny of the state. And it, fortunately, these kinds of things are being leaked out. The one young man will not be able to go back into Israel. It's pretty obvious for, for what he's done. And they actually would try to intercede and prevent arrests. In fact, he had a picture of them all piled up trying to prevent one of these children from being arrested. And occasionally they, they, do, they are successful. But it's beyond bizarre. I just it's it's hard for us to believe. And of course, we here in the United States get nothing of this kind of information. You really have to get it from places like Haritz, the Israeli paper, these other services to get the the full story. Tom, what no one talks about also is that inside these prisons and jails, there is every form of abuse that you can imagine. There's nothing that you've heard about in the newspapers or read about in Guantanamo or Abu Ghraib or any place that does not go on in these Israeli jails. They make it a point to punish men and women as, uh, in, as brutally as possible as a deterrent. And, of course, the Israelis and the Israeli press and our press never tell any of these abuse stories. And, of course, the Islamic culture is such that people do not admit many kinds of abuse. They just simply don't do it. They, they simply keep it to themselves. And Israel knows that and plays upon that. And it's ugly in these places. I won't go into details. But there's plenty of information available. And uh, if there was ever a brutal regime that needs to be turned over, it's the one we're talking about. Well, I think it's even more brutal than what the South Africans did under their apartheid system. This is... I think it goes one step beyond. Now, of course, the Israelis deny this in their public relations. People work overtime to give us their side of the story. And so, yes, a lot of this is withheld. But hearing these young men, uh, it was also, as, a, as an aside, one of the fellows, uh, young fellows, was just a recent college graduate. He's from Maryland. He's Jewish, and he went to Israel on a yeshiva, and somebody had suggested that he go there. He described himself as not being a religious Jew, but he was interested in his heritage. So he went on this yeshiva, which was in Jerusalem, and I don't know, he was there for quite a while. I don't know the exact time, but he got the one side, but one day he actually stumbled on a protest against the occupation and there was a Jewish rabbi that was in with it and he got talking to the rabbi and you know asking him why why they were doing it and so his eyes actually opened up and then he actually went into the West Bank to see for himself so these kinds of actions by Jewish people like this are happening I think more and more frequently we're seeing them speaking out and so, no, it's a, it's a really courageous act because he's pretty well shunned by his family because they don't want to talk about these kinds of things. The next item here, let's talk about the 40% of 
in many European countries think Israel is waging war of extermination against Palestinians. And this is from the Times of Israel, April the 17th. Leslie, why don't you read the summary, please? The Frederick Ebert Foundation is affiliated with Germany's main opposition Social Democratic Party. According to the foundation, the study is the very first to supply comprehensive and comparable data about the extent of prejudice and discrimination against the main target groups in eight selected European countries, France, Germany, Great Britain, Hungary, Italy, the Netherlands, Poland, and Portugal. Asked if Jews have too much influence in their country, about 70% of Hungarians, 50% of Poles, and 20% of Germans agreed. In the Netherlands, whose current foreign minister, Uri Rosenthal, is Jewish, 3.4 strongly agreed and 18% somewhat agreed. 30% of German and 22% of British respondents agreed with the statement that Jews in general do not care about anything or anyone but their own kind. In Portugal, that number is even higher at about 55% according to the report. Chuck, comments? Yes, this uh, foundation is, of course, operating in Germany. In Germany, it is against the law to say anything against a race, particularly the Jewish race. That's probably why only 20% of the Germans who took the poll answered positively, where around the rest of Europe, 40 to 50% of people polled felt that Israel was carrying out genocide against the Palestinian people, and uh, uh, numerous other statements were answered to the effect that Israel and Jews actually have too much power uh, in these various countries. Uh, the interesting part about this, this story is that it is coming out of a German group, and uh, Germany, of course, you can't say much, but in the rest of Europe, people are, especially in places like Poland. And what it amounts to is almost every place in the world, citizens on a broad general level are on to the state of Israel and what they're doing. They don't fool people in other countries. They only fool Americans. And I don't know about Latin American countries, and I don't know about the Far East. Probably not there either, though they probably don't care that much. But uh, in Europe, uh, people do think they care, but they are, are not really fooled too much by Israel. And uh, if we had these kind of numbers in the United States, it would, it would very soon put an end to Israel's financial aid out of the U.S., and that, of course, would put an aid to the abuses we've been talking about all night against the Palestinian people. Okay, well, let's move on to the next item. It relates to a piece that I saw in our local paper here in Phoenix, but looking around, it's an Associated Press piece, and it's entitled Orthodox Easter, Fire Ritual at Church of the Holy Sepulchre celebrates life and resurrection of Jesus. And there's some, when I went to the story in the Huffington Post, they had a number of interesting pictures. But it was, it was kind of a neutral story, but there was one telling thing 
that they did talk about in the story, just as kind of a by the way, down kind of buried further on down the story, it said, quote, many of the Palestinians obtained Israeli military permission to leave their West Bank towns to enter Jerusalem for the event in a longstanding grievance. Palestinian Christians and Muslims must seek Israeli military permission to visit their holy sites in Jerusalem. Now, the interesting thing, that's all you get out of it, but when you want to find out what the the rest of the story is, is to go to places like Haritz. And there is a good piece here entitled, this is a Haritz editorial, Palestinians need freedom in Jerusalem, not Israeli permits. I'm not going to really go into detail here, but the fact that they are questioning this, there's supposedly 20,000 permits that had been issued this year. The Army and Security Services have created a situation where virtually any Christian in the West Bank can visit the holy holy places in Jerusalem on Good Friday and Easter, quote-unquote. That's what the... Michael Owen, Israeli ambassador to the U.S., says, well, that's not really the true story there because they do limit these. It is a, a, a bureaucracy that people have to go through to get these these permits. So our hat's off to Haritz for questioning these insanity measures on one of the very important, well, the most important day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Orthodox Church limiting their movement to these holy sites, whereas international visitors can go freely. If they want to go to these sites, they can, so they have large crowds. This fire ritual goes back a thousand years or something. It's It's been a tradition for, for a long time. So well, this would be similar to a, let's say, a Arab or a Jew living in Brooklyn who wanted to visit the Bronx, and had to cross Manhattan to get there, and they have to apply for a permit to go. Then they have to go through the checkpoint between Manhattan and Brooklyn. They have to go through the checkpoint between Manhattan and the Bronx. And at all these checkpoints, they're going to have to stand in line for hours sometimes. Uh, And uh, all of this to go to the Bronx, which was uh, the guy's original home, or it's the place where his church is. This is uh, simply how it goes all over all over Palestine. It is a constant process of getting permission, showing papers, and trying to go just to simple places that are, are that are just a little ways away. A few years ago, when I was in Gaza, Shireen, beautiful girl who was 26, unmarried, the man she was committed to in their style of life lived in the West Bank, and uh, neither one of them had been out of their, uh, their enclave for three or four years so they couldn't even get together. This is just life in Palestine, and it is worse than anything that was ever thought of in the gulags of Russia, because in the gulags of Russia, everybody knew they were a prisoner, and they didn't even try to go anywhere or ask, because they knew the answer was simply no. In Palestine, they're led on to think they might be able to go to the doctor or to meet, meet a friend or go back to family home or something, and they usually just don't get there. Well, yes, and we might remind our listeners that there are something like over 600 checkpoints throughout the West Bank, and so it's a it's a form of control. They put roadblocks even on Palestinian 
roads that are only servicing Palestinians. And so a lot of this is done for spite. The one young man uh, in this West Bank Palestinian village, uh, they happened to one night come upon, it was a school bus with, I think there were 12-year-old children, I think they were boys, they were on some field trip, and the army had stopped the vehicle, and they were all lined up against a wall, and they did. the army did, people did not see them approaching, so they got a good view of what was going on, and they were the army guys were going up and down the line, smacking the kids on the head type of thing. And when they saw them, they allowed them to get back on the bus. But, you know, it's this kind of constant harassment that goes on all the time. I'm sorry, Chuck? And deliberate brutality, not just harassment. And, and yes, that leads right. That uh, story about the IDF officer who regrets beating an activist in front of a camera. Yes, uh, right. Leslie, would you read the story from her writs here? IDF Lieutenant Colonel Schall Eisner, who was filmed over the weekend hitting a Danish protester with his rifle butt in the Jordan Valley, personally responded to allegations against him on Tuesday. Check out the methods of the most moral army in the world, according to Israel. And there is a a link on our site that will take you right to this little video showing this actually happened where someone happened to have a camera right on this guy when he walked right up to a blonde young man uh, with woolly hair who was apparently doing nothing more than standing there. And this uh, burly lieutenant colonel in the Israeli military walked right up to him point blank and slammed him right in the middle of his face, right in the mouth with his rifle. Right. Getting treatment later, it was an act of total, uh, absolute. It was just a brutal, cheap shot attack. The, the guy had. No well, and then uh, Netanyahu did have to uh, condemn the the act because only because it was recorded, like you said, Chuck here. And this was a Danish uh, tourist. That was a, a bicyclist, actually. They were going to be riding in the Jordan Valley. Well, they set up a roadblock, and you could actually see one of the bicycles being confiscated. And so they basically uh, charged these bicyclists as with potential terrorism, and they were doing this for their sec- own security and other nonsensical reasons. And it just boggles the mind that they can, the world can be so oblivious to this. I mean, more people around the world are becoming aware of what Israel is doing, but here in the United States, we have been lulled by our government and our media to basically say, ho-hum, we're, we're moral people, and so are the Israelis, what the Israeli government is doing. It just, it's, it's just unbelievable. So the idea that the I, I don't know if the Israelis think that opposition is going to go away or if they can just do this kind of brute force all the time and hope they don't get caught on camera. In an additional story here, or kind of a parallel story, was the flytilla happening where something like 2,500 
people from around the world, mostly Europe, were going to fly into Ben Gurion Airport and then go into into the West Bank uh, down to Bethlehem, and the uh, Israelis, uh, according to a editorial by Gideon Levy in Haritz, entitled "Israel is Paranoid About Pro-Palestinian Activists," and here's what um, part what. Uh, Mr. Levy had to say, quote, but Israel has not been abandoned and the Israeli mind finally hit on something, the pro-Palestinian fly-in provocation, as it has already been called. The Minister of Public Security is convening feverish consultations. The airlines have received the quote-unquote blacklist prepared in advance by the omniscient security networks. The crime reporter, of course, this is a about crime, what else, has already been sent to Ben-Gurion Airport to greet the incoming danger, unquote. Israel is prepared for D-Day this coming Sunday, he goes on here. They say 2,500 activists yeah, will land in Israel and, and sow great fear. Well, according to another piece, I think only a, a, just a handful actually got in because people were getting these notices through the airlines saying that they would not be able to get in, that they would not be given a, granted a visa into Israel. So Israel nipped this in the bud, so to speak. And well, I, Tom, there's an, another vital point to really make this point. How is it that Israel managed to stop people from coming in? They didn't know who was coming in. Israel simply has a huge list of undesirables, they call it, that they have maintained. It has the names of all kinds of Americans on it who have no idea they're on any list at all. And mm-hmm. uh, these, most of these people who were actually flying in to take part in this probably had been involved in some other activity, and Israel had somehow managed to accumulate a list that was so large that by circulating that list, they intercepted most of the people who planned to come. Chances are there's some people in this podcast oh. right here in this room whose names are on that list, and that list was circulated through all the airlines, American Airlines, Continental Airlines, Israeli Airlines, and so on. So Israel has got this enormous database of Americans and other people all over the world who they are accumulating, who are their, basically their enemy list, and they go right to our government, right to our organizations, our business organizations, such as airlines here, and they tell the airline, do not sell a ticket or whoever the parties are. Now, the interesting thing, Chuck, tourism is a big thing with uh, Israel, so they've got to watch their balance because if they get too big of a blacklist, then they won't have people coming to visit the Holy Land. We know that's a tremendous business. We talked about my local Sunday school class that had 30-some people that went there in, in January, and they were basically oblivious to what's going on. They spent a few hours in Palestine, and then they're whisked out, and they don't really get to interact with anybody. And so, you know, it's a, it's a big show for them. But if more people would get on the list, maybe it'll hurt their um, their tourism business. Yeah, uh, there's a there's a, a wrap up and punchline to all of this, and that is, what does Israel say in response to all of these charges that people are leveling against them as being a genocidal organization as being brutal, as being confrontational, as seeking war, what is their response? There is a story 
comparing Israel's conduct in Gaza to the U.S. conduct in Iraq. Then the uh, Jewish virtual library dated April 17th, and Israel actually has posted a story in this Jewish library that compares them to the United States of America and says that they are by comparison to the U.S., that they are mild and well-behaved and respondent to international law. And that story is also posted on our, on our website, comparing Israel's conduct in Gaza to U.S. conduct in Iraq. And do um, you want to hear what Israel says about the U.S. Marines in Fallujah in Iraq in 2004? They simply come out and tell how many people the U.S. government has killed, how many Iraqis that we killed, how many we destroyed, and, and they point out that, that the U.S. destroyed 50,000 buildings, 100,000 of the 50,000 buildings in the city were destroyed, and that included 60 mosques. Uh, that, that's the story that uh, Israel posts on their friendly websites to make them look good compared to the United States government. So how do, you, how do we feel about that? Well, many Americans, of course, are oblivious to what we've done in, in Iraq. They think it was a, a moral and just war. So those are just casualties. Uh, we've got the, uh, the collateral damage, the people that are killed, the, the innocent civilians and so forth. Leslie? There's this one quote from that. It says, quote, the United States left a trail of destruction in Fallujah that was far greater than anything Israel inflicted on Gaza. So there is no basis to claim that Israeli conduct of anti-terrorist warfare is less restrained than that of other enlightened states. Enlightened states, yeah, that's something. And the fact that uh, Gaza is basically, it is a prison, it's, what, 25 miles long by 5 miles wide, very small area. And so, yeah, it's it's the old relative, well, we're relatively good compared to the United States, but let's face it, what is Israel got less than 7 million population, and the United States is 300 million. So, yeah, we, we've got even more power, and we've seen that in both Afghanistan and Iraq, and certainly the, what we've done is bad, but comparing themselves in something like this, it's amazing. That's that's what I call the ultimate chutzpah. Chutzpah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've had enough of chutzpah, so it's time to put an end to this. Well, it is, and another. I guess the last item that I want to cover here is that we get all this disinformation, and, of course, one of the things that – We've heard all the time about Iran, that they want to wipe us out, and meaning Israel. And this was an interesting interview from Mondo Weiss, Philip Weiss, who's Jewish. Actually, this was by uh, Annie Robbins, a report here on the 16th of April. And it's entitled, Iran didn't threaten to, quote, unquote, wipe Israel out, Israel's deputy minister. Timor Nabili is uh, awesome in this talk with Al Jazeera interview with Israel's Deputy Prime Minister Dan Meridor in Jerusalem last week. Meridor is also Minister of Intelligence and Atomic Energy with a background in Iran issues. Hence, the interview is focused on Iran. Nabili noticed something unusual and writes about it on the Al Jazeera blog, and here's what she said. 
quote, what was it a momentary lapse of concentration or an honest admission? It's when I challenged him on the biggest talking point of all, Iran's supposed determination to, quote, wipe Israel off the face of the map, unquote, that Meridor seemed to stumble outside the lines of the agreed narrative. And here's what they what he said, Meridor. He's talking about Iran's leaders. All come basically ideologically, religiously, with the statement that Israel is an unnatural creature. It will not survive. They didn't say, we'll wipe it out. You are right. But that it will not survive. It is a cancerous tumor. It should be removed. Now, Billy, well, I, I'm glad you acknowledge they didn't say they will wipe it out because certainly Israeli politicians, dot, 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 and then Meridor says they say it will be removed, needs to be removed. So that's a that's a major eye-opener there, I think, that uh, we've heard, of course, from our media and uh, our government. We That's all we hear, that what Iran and their leaders say that they have to wipe out Israel. Chuck, do you have any final thoughts on that or anything before we wrap this up? I think we've got it pretty well got a wrap. Okay, well, that's our report for tonight. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.